0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the second hour of our broadcast. A shout-out to our listeners on K Talk 1640 AM in Salt Lake City, as well as those of you listening on the Loving Liberty radio network. Whether it's on the app, which is a simple, easy no cost download that you can put on your smartphone to access at any time. Or those of you who will just catch it later in podcast form, which apparently is uh, becoming quite the way to uh, enjoy not just this program, but lots of programs like that. Whether, uh, you know, whether you're catching it live or whether you're catching it uh, you know, in podcast form, thanks for being a part of our growing audience. And thank you for helping other people find their way to this program and others like it. I really do appreciate it. Hope that uh, we're making it worth your time. We're going to talk a little bit this hour about how courage is contagious, and I know you're going to hear that a lot. Maybe you're getting sick of hearing it, but I am grateful to see examples of courage, and it, it takes a lot of different, uh, a di- lot of different forms here. And maybe you've heard about uh, several different counties. I think five counties in Pennsylvania have told the governor there we are going to make the decision how and when to reopen. In fact, I think they went ahead and said we're going to reopen our businesses. We're not waiting for official permission from the state. And I know there are those who will disagree. Well, it's a dangerous thing to do. You know, it's, it's, it's that, that central planning mentality that unfortunately gets trained into us. Well, if somebody in a higher place of authority hasn't signed off, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. Look, I maybe I'm putting more faith than I should in government that's a little closer to the people, be it at the county level or in some cases at the state level. But I think they know what they're doing. I don't think anybody is just recklessly, you know, "Ah, let's just throw caution to the wind and see what happens. Too many people are, are finally beginning to recognize that this is not a sustainable way to go about doing things. We can't continue on in the way that we've been going with businesses shut down. No end in sight without having severe repercussions for many months, maybe years to come. And so I admire those who are willing to just stand up and say, we're going to make this happen. You know, yesterday we talked about that 77-year-old barber in, uh, in Michigan who has reopened his shop. He was served with papers, I guess. Uh, the state police delivered a health protection order ordering that he close his doors. Well... Now there are actually uh, members of the Michigan militia who have shown up and are standing guard at his doors of his barbershop blocking the entrance so that police cannot come in there and arrest this guy. Now, I'm not suggesting this is the answer for everything. Everybody, you know, (laughs) grab a gun, put on some camo and go go stand. But I do think that uh, the principle of standing for your neighbor, however you choose to do it, has legitimacy. And I know for those who who may disagree, well, that sounds like a very uh, provocative thing to do. Yeah, I I get that. And yet, uh, do you not see anything provocative in government at any level threatening violence against people who have harmed no one, who've been given no due process, who have simply been told, shut up and obey, obey. Even though it means, you know, basically sticking a knife right through the heart of your business. I'm glad there are people who are saying no. Elon Musk, maybe you saw this, dares California to arrest him for restarting his Tesla plant. Now, I don't know what you think about Elon Musk. I mean, a lot of people have mixed feelings about him, but that's a stand-up move. Especially the fact that he not only is willing to open his Tesla plant, but he's right there Working alongside those factory workers and he's telling the authorities, I think he tweeted to the authorities, if you're going to arrest anybody, please just let it be me. Something tells me he's going to have a better than average legal team (laughs) to fall back on, something that maybe the rest of us wouldn't have, but uh, more power to him. People should be standing up. I think the writing is on the wall. For those who have eyes to see, and, and I don't say this in any way to, to suggest that, you know, it's uh, this is some casual or thing that we should take lightly. If police continue to crack down as they have been cracking down, there's going to come a point where people will be either desperate enough or feel that they just don't have enough to lose, that they will get violent. And that is when the police are going to learn a very harsh and costly lesson And that is that they are hopelessly outnumbered by the public that they believe they are in charge of. I don't want to see that come. I don't think anybody does. I don't know if you followed the story of the police officer in Oregon. He was a a Port of Seattle police officer named Greg Anderson. Made a video a few days ago, I guess this was last week, saying he's getting tired of seeing his fellow officers violate the United States Constitution. He was compelled to make a video about it. And among the things he said, he says, that is not how our job works. Okay, he says, what has really been pissing me off lately is the fact that these officers that are going out there and enforcing these tyrannical orders, what they're doing is they're putting my job and my safety at risk, because what you're doing is you're widening the gap between public trust and law enforcement officers. And he went on to say, I want to remind you that regardless of where you stand on the coronavirus, we don't have the authority to do those things to people just because a mayor or a governor tells you otherwise. I don't care if it's your sergeant or your chief of police. We don't get to violate people's constitutional rights because somebody in our chain of command tells us otherwise. It's not how this country works. Those are de facto arrests. You know, we're violating people's rights. And the reason he sounded this warning was not because he was trying to draw attention. He's trying to avoid bloodshed in the streets. And I don't know that a more fair or clear warning has been given by the people who are standing up saying, let these businesses open. And the people who are gathering and standing watch, we will not let you come and arrest this business owner. But I think the hubris and the, the arrogance of so many of the people in power is that they just don't want to hear about it. And in this case, Anderson first, you know, this police officer, he received accolades from his department. Hey, we're on board. Well, we agree. Yes, this is a very good thing. They saw how viral the video had gone. They saw how many people were actually standing up and approving of it. And then about three hours later, he gets a message from them and their tone has changed completely. OK, well, it's time to take it down. I mean, by the next day, it had like 400,000 views. And they told him, take it down. And he says, I'm not going to take it down. This is truth. I'm speaking the truth. At which point he was told, take it down or else. And right now he is apparently on administrative leave, pending termination, because, as his superiors have told him, you cannot defy the governor of the state of Washington and remain a police officer. So you got to admire a guy who's willing to put his neck on the line, put his gig on the line, if you will, and pay the price more of us need to have that degree of conviction. Let's go to the phone caller. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Brian. Always a pleasure. And um, a little side note, and that is that um, that there is in the world, there is no program like your program. You really have a niche that no one else has, and it's really needed, especially in America. You know, amazing program. I have to admit, though, sometimes you fry my brain. It's part of what I do. <laughs> okay. Um, listen, before I make my comment, um, are you gonna? Um, do you have plans today to talk about the um, the Russian probe uh, papers that are that came out uh, Friday and Monday that implicate uh, Obama?
0: I had not planned on talking about it, but if you want to bring us up to speed, we've got a couple minutes to do it here.
1: Okay. Well, well. um, Before I do that, let me. The clock's
0: running, Ray. The the break is approaching, so get right to it, please.
1: Okay, it's running. Um, First of all, according to your subject, uh, on you know when the government's making all of our decisions, especially about the coronavirus or anything, they're taking away our right to be a hero or to have courage. I mean, if we're going to go out and support our family and risk our lives, I mean, driving a car, that I mean, flying an airplane without the coronavirus is a risk. Firemen, policemen that, you know, put their lives on the line. And, and this is a right we have to risk our lives for our country, for our families. And we decide if we want to risk our lives, you know, and and. Put forth courage and become a hero or not. I mean, the government, you know, making us all stay home, we we don't have a right. It it takes our right to decide, you know, our own life. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to risk it? Everyday life is a risk.
0: Well, when they start treating people who um, either question or come out and and defy some of these orders, which are not legislation, they're simply orders or edicts issued by executives. When people defy those things and they're treated as criminals for doing so, something has gone horribly wrong. And by the way, I think I'm glad you brought up the whole Russiagate thing. I probably won't talk about it today, but it is definitely a story I'm going to be keeping an eye on. And, Ray, I thank you so much for your call. When we come back... I want to share some good news with you. This is really good news. Federal and state governments are discovering they have less control over shutdowns than they thought they did. There's a great article from Eric Boehm from Reason Magazine. We'll share that with you just the other side of these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I want to share this uh, story with you that I think illustrates that the, the courage to stand up, even against strong public pressure and threats that people are going to die, and that's selfish, and you're just, you're, you don't get it. I'm in charge here. At least that's what some of the mayors and some of the governors seem to be saying. Uh, you know, the courage to do so is catching. It's contagious, and I'm very grateful for this. And I'm happy to see that uh, apparently... When it comes to uh, to these lockdowns, federal and state governments have a little less control than they thought they did. This is an article by Eric Boehm in Reason.com. Officials in six Pennsylvania counties say they will allow businesses to reopen without permission from the government. And he says it's time to expect more of that. On April 16th, he says President Donald Trump of the White House's COVID-19 task force outlined a three step process for states to begin unwinding their economic shutdowns. Now, the plan was contingent on ramping up testing and slowing the spread of new cases, and it would likely have taken months to progress from Phase 1 to Phase 3. Well, here we are just three weeks later. A growing number of states have largely discarded the federal plan in favor of their own efforts aimed at restarting their shattered communities. On April 22nd, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolfe outlined a three-step process for reopening regions of his state, with counties progressing from red to yellow to green. Now, counties can be fully reopened when there are fewer than 50 cases per 100,000 residents over two weeks. And so far, the state has cleared 37 counties out of 67 to move to the yellow stage on May 15th. Well, less than three weeks later, officials in six Pennsylvania counties that have yet to meet that threshold have declared their intention to reopen anyway. And sheriffs in two other counties say they will not issue citations to businesses that open in defiance of the state's shutdown order. Now, Although the county commissioners acted independently from one another, all of them are making more or less the same argument. The state-mandated economic shutdown has been ruinous. The vast majority of coronavirus deaths in Pennsylvania have been in nursing homes and the 50 and 100,000 threshold will take too long to reach. Now, the response to the coronavirus pandemic may appear to have been directed by government edict. State governments ordered people to stay home and forced businesses to close. The White House had daily press briefings to to prescribe rather, courses of action. Frustrated residents of various states have directed their outrage towards governors by staging protests at state capitals. But the week-long, weeks-long shutdowns, rather, that some parts of the, co- of the country continue to endure were never enforceable from the White House or from any state capital. Eric Bohm says they always depended on voluntary compliance from residents. Indeed, most state-level stay-at-home orders came days or even weeks after most Americans were already staying home as research from 538 pretty conclusively shows. Well, that compliance is now fraying in many places. And that's why governments can't fully control the economic reopening. It's not a few dozen protesters who will end the quarantines. It's millions of other people who have simply started going about their lives again. Now, he says officials need to recognize the limits of their authority. Federal state and county authorities can provide guidelines to individuals and businesses about the best ways to protect public health. They can, for example, encourage people to wear face masks in public, but they must also recognize that enforcing those rules with the threat of arrest is counterproductive. Similarly, a large prohibition on large sc- or prohibition on large scale public gatherings is much more enforceable than trying to control the behavior of every business in the state. In trying to enforce overly broad and sometimes arbitrary bans on economic activity, federal and state authorities have actually lost some of the public trust that's essential to fulfilling the role that government actually can fulfill right now, which is giving people advice on what is safe and what isn't. Back in March, Eric Bohm wrote, Total shutdowns cannot be expected to last for weeks or months, and equilibrium will be found either purposely and orderly by official policy, or haphazardly when people simply can't take it anymore. The White House, he says, has more or less given up on trying to force states to stick to the three-step process it outlined last month. Whether that's because the Trump administration realizes it has lost control of the situation or because the president is happy to have someone else to blame if things go poorly, well, he says you decide. But in Pennsylvania, Wolf appears prepared to drop the hammer on counties that attempt to buck his orders. In a series of tweets on Monday afternoon, the governor threatened to withhold funds from counties that reopen without state approval. Businesses that open without his say so could risk their liability insurance and the loss of state issued licenses, including liquor licenses for restaurants or bars. Here's what the governor said. I won't sit back and watch residents who live in counties under stay-at-home orders get sick because local leaders cannot see the risks of COVID-19 and push to reopen prematurely. Today, I'm announcing consequences for counties that do not abide by the law to remain closed. I'm sorry, but that's a, that's a tiny, impotent little fist wagging in the wind, trying to, to d- demand, you will respect my authority. Now, look, there's, of course, a difference between federal-state relationship and the state-county relationship. Counties and municipalities are legally the creations of the state government. They don't have the same degree of independence as the states do from the federal government. But it's still going to be instructive to see whether Wolf's heavy-handed approach works or simply spurs more opposition. Pennsylvania has been at the forefront of civic battles over COVID-19. It was one of the very first states to order businesses to close And it was one of the first states to see a huge spike in pandemic-era unemployment. So it makes sense that it would be one of the places where resistance to the shutdowns, organized resistance within various levels of government, not just angry mobs outside the Capitol, would occur. Wolf said, this is not a time to give up. In a tweet after he outlined how he planned to keep the counties in line, I intend to keep fighting. Yeah, right until the day that they throw your butt out of office, I'm sure. Now, Eric Bohm says one might wonder whether he's fighting the virus or his fellow Pennsylvanians and whether winning one battle will require losing the other. I hope you understand. I'm not suggesting that, uh, man, you know, uh, defiance for the sake of defiance is, is a great thing. But I think there comes a time where somebody has to be willing to do it. And God bless the sheriffs and others around the country who have said, I'm not going to allow my citizens to be victimized. I'm not going to enforce this dictate or that dictate. If it causes me to do things that violate the rights of these people. You know, this, this accusation that governor Wolf makes, well, they just simply don't, they want to pretend that COVID-19 isn't dangerous. Bull crap. They know it is. Everybody knows it is. The problem is we can see with our own eyes as dangerous as it may be to some segments of the population. It's clearly not as dangerous As we were led to believe that it would be. And if the testing results that have been coming out of the last few weeks, which indicate, you know, a lot more people have actually had this than even knew about it, then it indicates that, uh, you know what, for some people, it's just not that big of a deal. If you're young and relatively healthy, you may not even know that you had it, you may have been completely asymptomatic. Now, that doesn't mean, therefore, let's go put everybody else at risk. The people who live in these high-risk categories, over 65 years of age, pre-existing health problems, diabetes, smokers, heart disease, and so forth, immune diseases, they should know by now they are in a higher-risk category. The responsibility should be on them to mitigate their exposure whether that's limiting how much they go out in public or when they do go out in public, make sure they're wearing gloves or a mask or using hand sanitizer or observing social distancing. None of us wants to see them get sick. But at the same time, we don't want to see our lives turned on their heads just because someone worries about something that might happen. It's very clear for the vast majority of us, it hasn't happened yet. And it doesn't appear likely to happen as the authorities claimed it was going to. So we're not being reckless in asserting, government, get back in your lane. If anything, we're looking beyond this virus and saying, what are some of the likely consequences that happen if we allow government to start dictating? This business is essential, this one isn't. This activity is essential, this one isn't. You can leave home for this, but not for that. I think it establishes a precedent that will come back to bite us in ways that will be far more dangerous and potentially more deadly than coronavirus ever could have dreamed of being. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back. Trusted Voices of Truth and Insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I don't know if you heard about this poll. I really questioned the number uh, when I heard this. Something like uh, 68% of Americans say they would avoid normal life until there is a coronavirus vaccine. Now, early on, like in the early stages when we knew things were getting serious and things were shutting down, that number would not have surprised me. But uh, I would be shocked if there were people who actually, uh, you know, if, that, if that, that strong of a majority was really on board today. And there's a great article from, uh, from Robbie Suave from Reason.com that uh, debunks this very badly misreported Gallup poll in which, according to CNN, two-thirds of Americans said they would not return to a normal life until a vaccine becomes available for COVID-19. Now, Robbie Suave says the uh, ramifications of this finding would be well worth discussing since the timeline for a vaccine is unknowable, meaning it could be available next year and three years or even never. But it turns out that the headline 68 percent of Americans say a vaccine is needed before returning to normal life is actually fake news. Imagine that. The CNN article cites a Gallup poll as its source. But Gallup did not poll respondents on the question of whether a vaccine was needed before returning to normal life, which is the way that CNN worded the question in the headline. The actual question was this. How important are each of the following factors to you when thinking about your willingness to return to your normal activities and the option availability of a vaccine to prevent COVID-19 was important to 68 percent of the respondents? You see the difference? That's that's very, very different. A vaccine could be very important to people without being absolutely mandatory. Now, the difference is a little clearer later in the article where CNN uses the exact language from Gallup, but it's buried under a lot of other information. And Robbie Suave says this misinterpretation of the poll was first noticed by Arc Digital's Nicholas Grossman, who called it an egregious misreading. Looking at the two Gallup questions that, vac- that mention vaccines, the data shows that Americans are thinking about a lot of things and primarily concerned about a decline in new cases. He wrote CNN should delete the tweet, fix the article, issue a correction, and be a lot more careful to accurately represent survey data in the future. I guess the lesson here is, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. Even what I say, take it with a grain of salt. If it matters to really know what's going on, you got to be willing to do your own homework and your own due diligence. All right, back to the phone, 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Yeah, Brian. Um, Hi, Sam.
2: Sam calling. Yeah, um, First of all, I, would, I was going to go down the same road the article went, but I didn't know that at the time I called in. So basically, I'm just agreeing with the article at this point. The bottom line is, part of the problem is America's run by polls, and that shouldn't be. Because polls, you can skew polls to be anything. And that, that that article goes down the same road that I always go down. The first question I always ask is, first of all, who paid for the poll? Who is behind the polls? Because a lot of times you'll see where they skew the questions is the right way, you know, to get it to come out the way they want it. Because it all hinges on how they uh, ask the questions to how you answer. And... Um, and this is the problem that I find. This is why you find so many of these polls, you can't trust a thing that they say. And uh, so, like you said, take it with a grain of salt. It, um, and when it's CNN, I take it with a grain of salt anyway, because usually nine times out of ten when it comes to anything that's political, and just about everything has become political anymore. You know, I, I get a kick out of these people, Brian, who say, well, I don't like discussing politics anymore. And I said, well, I don't either, <laughs> but what not become political anymore? You know, anything you bring up, somebody's got their political nose in it. So you may as well keep your mouth shut if you're not going to discuss anything political, because everything has become political. Clear down to the bed you sleep on. Think of all the stuff that's regulated by government in your life, things that you don't even think about. Your toilet has become political. Your shower head has become political. You know, just go on down the list. Your washer and dryer have become political because the government controls how much water they can use.
0: Nothing Your is sacred. Yeah. Not, not anymore.
2: That's it. So, you know, we got to be very, very careful when we say that. I don't want to discuss anything political because the problem is politicians have their hands and bureaucrats have their hands in everything that's going on in day-to-day life. Now, there's a big difference in discussing issues, however, issues versus when you go and you say, okay, my guy's going to come in and he's going to fix it all, okay? Well, we know how well that's worked. I mean, probably the closest to anybody trying to do things on the right path at all has been probably somebody like Congressman Ron Paul, but he didn't have enough people on his side to really affect much of anything in the way of change, really, other than just voting no on everything that came down the pike. So- you know, I'll, I'll be the first one to agree that that we're past a political answer to our problems. But on the other hand, we have to be careful when we say we don't want to discuss anything political because everything in our lives has been made political and in, the, in ways that we don't even stop to think about. And it's going to get much worse before it gets better unless we do start to figure out how much government has invaded our lives.
0: Here's the distinction that I would offer. I think your observation is right on target. There's a distinction, though, um, and and it's a distinction between issues and forms. And and, and in way of forms, I'm talking about principles. If we get caught up primarily just on issues, that's that's what most of our discussions, what most of our news is about. Well, here's the issue of the day. And and we, we argue about, you know, should the government be doing this much or should it only be doing this much? If we argue about the form or the principle at stake, then the question starts, should the government be doing this in the first place? Not helmet. Right. Do, you, do, you see, do you see the difference?
2: Yeah, that's where I always go. I always tell my audience when I do my my show here. I said, at the end of the day, how does this how does this affect yours in my liberty? That's the question, and um, and we need to start standing up for those things that start encroaching on our liberties. We need to stand up and fight against those things. Here, here, and. Stay true to principle. It doesn't matter who's in office, because we see both Republicans and Democrats have done an awfully good job of walking all over our liberties and stuff during this COVID-19 stuff is a perfect example. So let's get the partisan politics out of the way. And the other thing I've been saying to people here lately, and I got to thinking about this with all the people that fell for this. And I might be able to understand it first when, you, uh, you know, of the unknown at very first. But I was calling this out when this whole thing first broke. And I'm telling some of these people that are still, you know, carrying on being so scared to death of everything now. You're no worse than those college kids you've been whining about over in the colleges that are <laughs> snowflakes now.
0: That's got a sting.
2: <laughs> yeah, but that's I mean, it's true. I mean, it's don't complain about these kids in the colleges and stuff that are absolute snowflakes. When you're doing the same thing, you can do your research. I'm a blind guy. I can do it. I, if I can do it with all the problems that I run into occasionally, there's no reason other people can't do it. The days of turning the remote and the 6 o'clock news on are long damn gone.
0: Sam, thanks so much for your call.
2: You bet.
1: That's all I got.
0: You know, this here's the thing, too. People may say, well, I don't know. Is this really tyranny? And to that, I have to ask you, what would it take to convince you that what we're seeing is a form of tyranny? You know, I don't know if you heard about the uh, I think it was a Waffle House restaurant in California in Fresno opened up its doors for business this weekend for Mother's Day. And this is something that a lot of people took advantage of. Apparently, there was a huge crowd that showed up. They were waiting to get in line. And police showed up to shut down the restaurant. Why? Because that's a violation of the orders, you know, given by, you know, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. You know, this, is, this state is in a shutdown. Well, an elder, elderly man who was next in line to enter was very indignant when the police showed up and said, well, we're here to shut the place down. He's like, hey, I've been waiting two hours to eat at this restaurant. I'm not about to step aside while you shut the place down. What did the police do with him? They violently handcuffed him and arrested him and dragged him off while his wife, who he was taking out for a Mother's Day breakfast, sadly followed to the police car. Now, it's uh, Ron Paul writing about this. said It's hard not to be disgusted by government enforcers who would brutally drag an elderly man away from a restaurant for the crime of wanting to take his wife out for breakfast on Mother's Day. And Ron Paul says a virus far more deadly than the coronavirus is spreading from Washington right down to the local city hall. Tin pot dictators are ruling by decree, while federal, state and local legislators largely stand by and watch as the U.S. Constitution they swore to protect goes up in smoke. He says politicians with perfect haircuts issue executive orders that anyone cutting hair for mere private citizens must be arrested. Remember the Texas salon owner who willingly went to jail for the crime of reopening her business in defiance of executive orders? And then to add insult to injury, Greg Abbott, to the governor of Texas, very quickly condemned the one-week jail sentence of salon owner Shelley Luther. But, of course, the officers who arrested her were only carrying out his orders. Ron Paul says, look, many politicians clearly see the creeping totalitarianism, but they lack the courage to speak out. This is the time when we have to take, you know, Patrick Henry's words to heart. Give me liberty or give me death unless a virus shows up. (laughs) If we want to reclaim our freedoms, we have to stand for them. As Thomas Paine wrote in 1776, these are the times that try men's souls, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands by it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to call in. All right, some people may want to push back on this. This might cause some heartburn, so I'm just going to warn you up front. I think that uh, we have a tendency to take our freedoms for granted, and I'm guilty of this in many ways, too. In fact, uh, someone was asking today, so uh, what have you learned? What's a positive thing that you have learned, you know, in the wake of this coronavirus crisis? And as I thought about it, you know, I'm I'm looking at people answering, well, I've gotten closer to my family. I've, you know, learned how to bake again, or I'm learning to be, you know, more uh, in touch with with the family members. The thing that really struck me was I I realized who and what I had been taking for granted. And when it comes to our freedoms, I think this is something we take for granted and are easily distracted. And, well, you know, here's a parade of fire trucks and here's a parade of police cars. And, oh, look, you know, there's an Air Force flyby. And and, and this is the stuff that it takes to, to make us go, wow, how cool. Look how free we are, even as we you know, play into the idea that I saw some kids over there on the playground equipment. I better call the police to come and ticket their parents or otherwise, you know, put them in their place. So how do you get the perspective to really appreciate and stand for your freedoms? I think the most convincing thing that I have ever encountered personally is to talk to someone who has lived under a system where freedom was absolutely not an option. And it's sobering. If you've talked to anybody who escaped from, you know, one of the Iron Curtain countries or uh, who lived under. uh, We had a good friend when we lived in southern Utah whose uh, family was uh, was taken away by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. Wow. You want to talk about uh, getting a graphic understanding of what happens when freedom is fully taken away. It's it's. Very chilling, and I know our belief is well, it can never happen here. Why? Because America, that's why. Well, there's a great article on the Foundation for Economic Education website. John Miltimore is the author of this. Communism Survivor Warns What Will Happen If Americans Take Freedom For Granted. He says, Too few have learned about the horrors of communism, and fewer still have escaped it and lived to tell the tale. Amy Fon West is one such survivor. In 1984, she escaped Vietnam's communist dictatorship by concealing herself in the bottom of one of her father's fishing vessels before it set out to sea. Now, escape wasn't a question of political preference for Phan and her family. It was one of survival. In a recent interview with Young Americans Against Socialism, Phan told how her grandfather was shot 16 times while laying on her father's lap. She says, my dad told my mom we can't have a future in Vietnam. So, we have to leave Vietnam because we will die in the hands of the communists. She's an entrepreneur who now lives in America now, before the communist takeover, Fawn's mother and father made a living by fishing. They made enough to feed themselves and put a roof over the heads of their small family, which included Fawn's twin brother and her younger sister. Fawn said life was beautiful and nice in Vietnam for a time, but she said things quickly changed, however, under the communist regime. Once the communists took over, she said, everything that my parents fished, they had to give to the communists, the government. And if they didn't do that, they make an example of them, bury them alive. Now, her father realized his family could not survive in Vietnam. So one day he hid them all underneath his fishing boat and set out to sea, taking with them all the food, water and clothes they possessed. After three days at sea, the family ran out of fresh water. They were saved when they encountered a German oil tanker. The crew took them in, gave them food and water, and eventually carried them to a refugee camp in Thailand. Now, the conditions at the refugee camp were poor, as you can imagine, but eventually Phan and her family were granted asylum in America. But the horrors of communism continued to haunt her. She says, I've seen women and children raped and thrown overboard on a fishing boat. I've seen people die because of starvation and eating flesh to survive. Fawn says she has no wish to relive that experience. And her message to young Americans is simple. Cherish and protect the Constitution. She says right now in America, we still have freedom. We still have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and freedom to bear arms. We have freedom to be entrepreneurs, freedom to free market. Pointing to freedom and retreat in nations around the world, such as North Korea, Venezuela, and China, Fawn says Americans must not take these freedoms for granted. She says, this country is great because of our Constitution, so we have to fight and we have to preserve that. If we don't, we will lose it all. Now, as moving and powerful as Fawn's story is, John Miltmore says many fee readers will recognize that the horrors of which she, she speaks are tragically not unique. As Ilya Solman of George Mason University pointed out in a 2017 Washington Post article, Communist states killed as many as a hundred million people collectively during the 20th century, more than all other totalitarian regimes combined during that period. In China alone, Mao Zedong's great leap forward led to a man-made famine in which as many as 45 million people perished, the single biggest episode of mass murder in all of world history. In the Soviet Union, under Stalin's collectivization, which served as a model for similar efforts in China and elsewhere... That took some 6 to 10 million lives. Mass famines occurred in other communist regimes, ranging from North Korea to Ethiopia. In each of these cases, communist rulers were well aware that their policies were causing mass death. And in each, they persisted, nonetheless, often because they considered the extermination of Kulak peasants a feature rather than a bug. Now, while collectivization was the single biggest killer, Communist regimes also engaged in other forms of mass murder on an epic scale. Millions died in slave labor camps such as the USSR's gulag system and its equivalents elsewhere. Many others were killed in more conventional mass executions such as those of Stalin's Great Purge and the killing fields of Cambodia. The injustices of communism were not limited to mass murder alone. Even those fortunate enough to survive still were subjected to severe repression, including violations of freedom of speech, freedom of religion, loss of property rights, and the criminalization of ordinary economic activity. No previous tyranny sought such complete control over nearly every aspect of people's lives. And John Miltimore says, read that last sentence again. No previous tyranny sought such complete control over nearly every aspect of people's lives. Now, Soman gets at the heart of Marxism here. While many see socialism as a philosophy of compassion, the ideology is pregnant with the desire to control others. Now, to be sure, many seek to use this control for noble ends, like eliminating poverty, reducing inequality. But as Fee founder Leonard Reed observed in his classic work, Let Freedom Reign, the bloom pre-exists in the seed. This was Reed's way of saying we must look at the means we use, not just the ends we seek. Reed said, ends, goals, and aims are the hope, are but the hope for things to come. They are not a part of the reality from which we may safely be taken, from which may safely be taken the standards for right conduct. They are no more trusted as benchmarks than are daydreams or flights of fancy. He says, many of the most monstrous deeds in human history have been perpetrated in the name of doing good in pursuit of some noble goal. They illustrate the fallacy that the end justifies the means. End quote. Now, John Miltimore points out Fee's archives are filled with articles chronicling, chronicling the horrors of Marxism, from the Bolshevik resolu- Revolution of 1917 to the tragic collapse that continues today in socialist Venezuela. There are accounts of others who, like fun escaped communism only to find the seeds of its rebirth here in America. Some of them are doing their part to help Americans understand socialism and freedom. Now, John Miltimore says it's a cliche, but sometimes cliches are true. Freedom is not free. And if Americans forget this crucial truth, we may one day learn the bitter truth of socialism that Fawn and so many others were forced to endure. He says Fawn at least appears determined to never let that happen again. If you hear my voice today, she said, this is it. Never, never surrender your Second Amendment. Because once you do, they'll bury you alive. Now, if that seems dark, or if you think, whoa, that's, huh, that's pretty uh, sensational, just consider, you know, that's coming from someone who actually saw the fruits of what absolute, total control looks like. We're certainly not there yet. But as I mentioned yesterday, Which direction are our feet taking us? Which direction are we moving? Even if it's slowly and one tiny baby step at a time. One of the most powerful books that you can get your hands on actually doesn't so much talk about communism, but talks about the Third Reich and how the people of Weimar Germany found themselves under a dictatorship they could scarcely have imagined. It's called They Thought They Were Free, and it's by Milton Meyer. And it's one of the most powerful books you'll read because you will recognize in terms of totalitarianism, whether it's communism or fascism or any other ism, it's the direction you're going that makes the difference. Doesn't matter how fast or how slow, if you're moving in the wrong direction, you got to stop. This is Loving Liberty. Thank you so much for listening.